There's an ancient story, legend, myth, not sure what parts, if any of it, are true. You're probably familiar with the name King Arthur. You've heard that name before. Depending on which ancient stories you read, the details differ in his life. Some of the essential details change. But it's fascinating to kind of think and learn about these stories coming out of the 5th and 6th century in Britain. A story tells us that he gained victory over his enemies, over the enemies of Britain, and created an empire that was strong and powerful. And perhaps you are familiar with the name of his wife, Genevieve, or Genevieve, I'm sorry, or Camelot, the place where his castle was, the name of his castle. Uh, or there's the famous story where he gained his power by pulling that sword out of the stone, Excalibur. Uh, he was the only one that could do it. And because of that, he became the king over the land. Of course, there was that famous round table where his knights, his leaders would sit as equals and share their opinions. Sadly to say, this ancient king, if he ever did exist, he didn't last forever. As good as he was, the stories tell us he died in the Battle of Camlon. Well, not everybody says he died there. Some say he was just wounded in Camlon. And he was taken by boat to the mythical island of Avalon, a place where it was said that he could recover hopefully regain his strength. Nobody really saw him after that battle, so nobody really knows. Of course, no one really knows if he even existed. There also was that other guy that hung around and helped advise King Arthur. His name was Merlin. Some people called him a sorcerer. Others said he was more of like a prophet. But in an ancient poem, it's, it's a really long poem, ancient document uh, that was written hundreds of years later about Merlin's life. There's a prophecy concerning King Arthur from Merlin saying that someday King Arthur would come back to Britain to regain the throne, to deliver the people from their enemies, coming back, as it were, from the dead to regain his throne, and to set everything right. Now, where have we heard that before? Have we ever heard those words before? I don't know how much, if any, of the story of King Arthur is true, but we have a better story that we celebrate on this weekend, don't we? A true king to come back, not to sit on the throne of Britain, but to sit on the throne of David. In fact, as we look at Old Testament prophecies, we see that this idea that, that an ideal version of David would return someday to sit on the throne of David. This is prevalent in Old Testament prophetic writings, and we'll see it again today in Micah chapter 5. So I want to invite you to open up to Micah. 
We should be getting a few more creases in your Bibles in the book of Micah as we're now in our fifth week in this sermon series. We only have two more weeks after this, but hang on. The next couple of weeks have some really, really good things. Micah chapter 5, and I'll be honest with you, I struggle as a preacher because I realize not everybody wants to hear the same stuff. Not everybody needs to hear the same things. And there's a part of me that just wants to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, line by line, and explain as much as I can. And there's another part of me that says, if you do that, it's going to take way too long, and we're going to get lost in the details, and it's also going to kind of make some people fall asleep. So we got to have a central theme. we got to tie it all together here. And I remember a professor at seminary, he said, if you can't diagram something or outline it, you don't understand it. So to, to pay it forward for you, in a sense, I'm going to show you my outline of this chapter before we go through some of the details, not all of them, but some, and then we're going to revisit the outline at the end. So hopefully, we're not going to lose anybody, and we're going to have a better understanding and appreciation for God's Word. So, Micah chapter 5, this is my own outline. What do we see and what will we see in Micah chapter 5? Verse 1 is going to deal with the present difficulties the people find themselves in at that time. Then verse 2, we get a promise of the coming Messiah. Not present, but a future Messiah that will come. Uh, But then we're reminded that there will be challenges while they wait. Problems before the advent of the Messiah. Then in verses 4 through 6, we're going to deal with the reign of the Messiah, what will happen, what could happen, victory of the remnant, those who remain in verses 7 through 9, um, and then God will seek to purify his people in two different areas. Uh, purify them of the things that they put their confidence in outside of God, and then purify them from spiritualism and idolatry. And then finally, in verse 15, the last verse of the chapter, we're going to see God's judgment on the nations. So that's an outline, a roadmap of where we're going today. Having said that, let's dive in to Micah chapter 5 and verse 1. Now in the Hebrew Bible, verse 1 is actually a part of chapter 4. And it's, it's important that we don't get so hung up on chapter divisions in the Bible because sometimes we miss important details because we stop reading at the end of one chapter in the English translation, and then we pick it up later um, in the next chapter. So present difficulties. Verse 1, now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. And there's, in the Hebrew, there's some assonance. There's some play on words that's going on here. It says, he has laid a siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod Probably the historical reality that Micah's people were dealing with at this point was perhaps uh, the armies of Sennacherib in 701 B.C. that surrounded the nation. Uh, And if you remember the story of Sennacherib, it's awesome how God delivered them. Uh, He 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 had to flee the scene uh, and was horribly beaten by one angel in one night. But before this happened, they were surrounded. Their city had been um, experiencing siege. And then it, it 
says that they would strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. This was a very insulting thing to happen in ancient cultures. To be slapped in the face, to be struck in the face, was highly offensive. So think, 700 years later, Jesus, the king of the Jews, the king of the universe, uh, the ideal David is there being beaten, being whipped, and what do they do? They slap him in the face. They spit in his face. Not only is it physical torture, this is humiliating behavior in those days. I remember when my sister was little uh, and she learned that they spat in Jesus' face, she was asked, or she asked my dad, could he wipe it off? She was thinking about, you know, that's gross to have saliva on your face. And, and my dad thought about it and he said, no, honey, I don't think he could. Different way you think about Bible stories uh, when you think about it through the mind and the questions of a child. People in Micah's day experienced difficulties, struggles, insult. But verse 2 promised the coming Messiah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. There were two Bethlehems. So here we see specified just which Bethlehem we're dealing with. And there's also, this seems to amplify the connection to David because David was of the clan of the Ephrathites there being born in Bethlehem. So as we're talking about this idealistic David that's going to show up on the scene, we're reminded this guy's from the same hometown, the same clan area where David was. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the clans or the thousands of Judah, Hebrew word there is Eleph, which Sometimes means a thousand, sometimes means clans, which can sometimes make passages difficult. But this clan, this tribe, this area wasn't all that significant. Uh, it's significant today. I got to go there. Uh, a lot of tourism. You know, we didn't really like Bethlehem because it was just so commercialized, so built up in some of the sites. Um, that are connected with the birth of Jesus, or said to have been connected. But in those days, it was small, it was insignificant. Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Who says important and powerful people can't come from small, insignificant beginnings. And then there's that last phrase that says, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Other translations say from ancient times. The, the phrase makedem in Hebrew is sometimes used to talk about people or events or things that happened long ago. And they also, it also appears to be translated to talk about things from everlasting. And so how fitting that the Messiah, the ideal David who is going to show up on the scene not only was from ancient times in the sense that he was of the line of David, he was from this historical line. But he also, as the Gospel of John and John chapter 1 tells us, was from the beginning, from everlasting. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. 
And so they're promised somebody is going to show up on the scene and he's going to be ruler in Israel. Ruler from ancient times. Rulers whose goings forth is from everlasting. This was a prophecy that people in Christ's day, before Christ, recognized was messianic in origin. In fact, I even watched a video this week. Even uh, a modern-day rabbi from, I forget which branch of Judaism, recognizes this passage is indeed a messianic prophecy. Because when the, the wise men showed up on the scene, they asked, hey, where's the Messiah going to be born? Where should we be looking? The answer was given right away. Bethlehem. This is where the Messiah will be born. The promise of the Messiah. But then verse 3. There's going to be some waiting that's going to have to happen. Future challenges while waiting. Therefore he shall give them up. Wait, what? I thought there was going to be a Messiah. But it says now he'll give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. There had to be a waiting time. And you remember what it says in the New Testament? It wasn't until the fullness of time that the Messiah showed up on the scene. So there was still some difficult days ahead. And you recall from previous weeks that judgment was was coming on the people. That the Babylonian captivity was going to happen. So on the one hand, we're given this promise Better days are ahead, but also reminding them, yes, there will be some challenges in the future. Everything is not roses as we wait for the glorious advent of the Messiah. Until she who is in labor has given birth. Uh, More generally, we're dealing with the nation of Israel who gave birth to the Messiah. And the town of Bethlehem, where towns are sometimes in the Bible called by feminine pronouns, Uh, but more specifically, Mary herself was the one who gave birth to the Messiah. And then the remnant of his brethren, it says, shall return to the children of Israel. After the Babylonian captivity, there was a remnant who came home. Not everybody wanted to go home when they were invited to go home. But probably, possibly this passage is maybe referring more to a spiritual remnant that the Messiah was seeking to gather to him in those days, calling people from all walks of life to accept and embrace him as the Messiah. And then we get to verse 4, the messianic reign, the reign of our Messiah. It says, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Now this is language that you'd use to talk about a shepherd. Now who else was a famous shepherd in Israel's past history? David. Again, Jesus is the ideal David coming to take his throne, coming from his birthplace, from the place of his clan, and coming from the same profession. And Jesus, when he showed up, he said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I lay down my life for my sheep. You know, as a shepherd, sometimes he has to lead us through difficult times. Have you ever read Psalm 23? There are some peaceful valleys and scenes of grass and still waters, but there's also that valley of the shadow of death. But even there, 
the sheep find comfort from the shepherd. As our shepherd leader, Jesus leads us through this life. He doesn't promise things to always go our way, but he promises to always help us and offer us comfort for when we need. He does it in the strength of the Lord, verse 4 says, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. I want to abide with my shepherd, king, leader. How about you? They shall abide. Now, and now, for now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He wasn't just going to be a local leader, but a global one. To the ends of the earth, this Messiah will and would reign. Verse 5, and this one shall be peace. Not that he would be peaceful, but he would be peace. And what do we call Jesus? We call him the Prince of Peace. He said, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave unto you. Peace in the Old Testament, that word there is shalom. You've probably heard it before. Which doesn't just mean the absence of war. It also means the presence of security. Um, it means well-being, prosperity, even at times internal and spiritual peace. As king, as leader, he would provide this shalom that the people needed then and we desperately need now. Continuing on in verse 5, it says, For when the Assyrians come into our land, when the enemies, and those were the present enemies of God's people at that time, when they come into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we shall raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. The Messiah would give them victory. Notice it also, it says, seven shepherds, eight. Uh, this is a common Hebrew thing in poetry. And you'll see it in like Amos chapter 1, verse 3. It says, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not restore it. Or Proverbs 30, verse 15. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. You introduce a number, and then you go one number higher than it. And so here, the number seven is introduced, which we know as a perfect number in, in the Bible. So God has given them sufficient numbers of leaders, even more than that, eight, that would help them. And it's interesting because uh, I'm going to put something on the screen here. There's a literary structure of Micah chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, that you may miss if you're just casually reading through it. But notice what we have here. And he will be our peace, which corresponds with the other part. He will deliver us from the Assyrians. Uh, B, when the Assyrian invades our land. B prime, when he invades our land. C, and marches through our fortresses. C prime, and marches into our borders. And then here in the middle, we will raise against him seven shepherds, eight even leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, or they will defeat them in the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. So again, these prophetic books, they, they're not only carrying deep significance, but they're well-written. And it's interesting how the authors have crafted them to highlight certain details, uh, to get our attention with alliteration, uh, plays on words. The, 
to appeal to those with a certain sense of poetic interest. And so the passage tells us God, Jesus, as the coming Messiah, he would provide deliverance, victory. And then we move into verse 7. 7 through 9 deals with the victory of the remnant. Verse 7, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. This remnant will be gathered and would be abundant. Verse 8, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest. Now, in the last chapter, they were compared to an ox, a strong ox, and now compared to a lion, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Again, using the language of conquering, of victory, You people who had been forced to go into the land of Babylon as slaves, as captives, who had horrible, horrible things done to you by the Babylonians, by the the Assyrians, now God is promising they would be victorious. They wouldn't be trampled down by their enemies. Instead, they would have the power over their enemies. But we need to remember what we talked about last week. Last week, we spoke about how the promises and the threatenings in the Bible are often conditional, based upon a condition. And based on the changing conditions, God will change what needs to be said. We spoke and we realized how God often tells us how we can be through him and in him. But when we so often fall short of that glory, we fail to reach our full potential as we could in Christ. And so uh, I was noticing or reading this passage in the Desire of Ages, uh, page 27 and 28. I'm going to put it up on the screen here for you. Very interesting. Quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 7, notice what um, Sister White had to say. She said, even after Israel had been wasted by war and captivity, even after all those bad things, the promise was theirs. And now this is Micah 5, 7. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people, as dew from the Lord, as a shower upon the grass, that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. Micah 5, 7. But the Israelites fixed their hopes upon worldly greatness. There still was that promise, even after all their challenges, but their hopes began fixed upon worldly greatness. Had Israel been true to God, he could have accomplished his purpose through their honor and exaltation. If they had walked in the ways of obedience, he would have made them high above all nations which he hath made, in praise and in name and honor. But because of their unfaithfulness, God's purpose could be wrought out only through continued adversity and humiliation. There was a better way, a more glorious way, a brighter way, but that wasn't the way that unfolded, unfortunately. So these promises of Micah 5 weren't fulfilled to their potential. 
But like we discussed last week, God has a way of still accomplishing his purposes in this world. In spite of our failures, he has a way of accomplishing his goals, which is providing optimal chances for salvation for all, trying to save as many as possible. And so God works progressively uh, to fulfill these promises, fulfilling them through the church, fulfilling them through the continued presence and action of his Holy Spirit, fulfilling them ultimately uh, when he comes back, not as a lowly babe, but as commanding and conquering king. And so now we turn to our final section, verses 10 through 15, where we see, well, 10 through 14 first, where we see God seeking to purify the remnant of his people. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities from your land and throw down all your strongholds. Now, does God hate horses? Of course not. Of course not. But if people are depending on something instead of him, that becomes a problem. And in days when they didn't have tanks, didn't have airplanes... Boy, a horse and a chariot, that's about as much of a tank as you can get in battle. And it was easy for nations to become confident in their weaponry, in their arsenals, in their strongholds, in their walls, than to ultimately place their trust in the Lord. God's saying, hey, you're relying on these things. We need to, we need to get rid of those things that you're relying on too much. Verse 12, not only the things they relied on, but now their sorceries, their spiritualism, their idolatry. He says, I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off, and the sacred pillars from your midst, these idols that they were worshiping, that the, the people who were not true to God were worshiping. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst, thus I will destroy your cities. This is interesting, but remember God says the people that he loves, those are the ones that he chastens. Like silver refined in a furnace, God was seeking and is always seeking to refine his people. And, and we don't really grasp the significance of idolatry because we don't, I mean, I don't have bales, little figurines of the God of the storm in my house. Maybe you do, but I don't. But that doesn't mean I am at not at risk of falling into idolatry, right? Because anything can become an idol. I want to read you some words here from a Bible scholar. His name's William Kelly, and he talked about the significance of idolatry in our day. He said, Micah condemned idolatry because it involved people in the worship of that which their own hands had made. The temptation was to worship the work of our own hands, or to worship the work of our own hands, is as real today as it was in the time of the prophet. Our forms of idolatry may be more sophisticated than those that Micah encountered, but they are basically the same. We trust in our own skill and ingenuity to lead us through our problems. We feel more secure trusting the works of our own hands rather than trusting God supremely. And this is what idolatry is all about. 
when we say to ourselves, hey, God, we don't say this intentionally, but our actions do. I got this. I can take care of this one. I don't need to pray about this decision because I got it. <laughs> For those of you that like to use memes and GIFs on your phone, I, I just remember that guy. Clary knows because <laughs> I've sent that one. Clary loves a good meme. Uh, my family, we have a text group, and we're constantly sending these funny GIFs and memes and GIFs, however you pronounce it. We need to remember all of our wisdom comes from God. He's given us wisdom, but we need to continually come back to the source of wisdom. Never think we can do it on our own. Never let the work of our hands become our own idols. Maybe it's our career. Maybe it's our house. Maybe it's um, our physique or whatever the case might be. We can't let it become These kind of idols are more insidious. They're, they're, they're almost more dangerous. The idolatry of entertaining ourselves. The idolatry of pleasing ourselves. The, the idolatry of, of the food that we love so much that it takes up too much space in our life. Whatever, anything could become an idol. You know, I remember hearing a story about a guy. He loved to play checkers. Checkers. I mean, who doesn't like a good game? Of checkers. I don't think there's anything wrong with checkers. It's a morally, uh, seemingly neutral game. But for this guy in particular, he said, every time I would get down on my knees to talk to the Lord in prayer and bow my head, I would just see that checkerboard in my mind. And he realized checkers had become too important. It was taking away from his time with the Lord. Can you play checkers? Sure. Go for it. But if it becomes an idol, get rid of it. So some of these things we have to case by case sort through them because not everything is black and white in our lives. There are certain things in the Bible that says clearly this is bad, this is wrong. But a lot of life is prayerfully dialoguing with God Figuring out, God, is this what your will is for me? Is this what is best for me at this time? And finally, verse 15. God says, I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. Uh, the word hear there often means obeyed. Often our modern ears are, they cringe a little bit when we hear words like anger and fury or words like vengeance. Uh, but I, I think the English translation of vengeance doesn't do justice, doesn't adequately express the meaning of this word. Um, this is more given in the context of a ruler that through his sovereignty is securing the safety um, and the wholeness of his nation. Um, rescuing his people from the enemies that have sought to persecute them and hurt them. Um, and helping to restore law and order within his realm. And for people like us who have never experienced uh, genocide and have never experienced the atrocities in general that much of our world has experienced, we don't 
get and understand the importance of a God who brings justice and a God who brings divine and just retribution for wrongs committed in this world. But our God is a God of mercy and he's also a God of justice. Never what is beyond justice, but always what is just and what is fair. So I promised you we would look at the outline again to make sure we didn't get lost in the details and kind of review where we've been so far in this chapter. And I think you'll see that even though 2,700 years have passed since this chapter was written, there are so many parallels to our experience today. So let's go through it again. The people in that day experienced present difficulties. <laughs> Anyone not experiencing present difficulties? Now thank God it's not the Assyrians surrounding us, but all of us have challenges. There was a promise of a Messiah that was going to come, going to show up on the scene, but before that happened, there were still going to be challenges while they wait. Do we have challenges while we wait for our promised Messiah? Nevertheless, there will be, and there was, and there is the reign of a Messiah. Right now, it's not what it will be, but thank God, our God is still on the throne. There will be the victory of the remnant. Those people that are faithful to God. God is seeking and was seeking to purify his people, taking away from them the things that they're putting their trust in outside of him, and also seeking to remove spiritualism and idolatry. And one day, yes, one day, God's judgment will bring justice on the nations. Does this sound at all familiar to where we are in our present history? On this Easter, on this resurrection weekend, it's awesome that we could think about this passage. When the ideal David was promised to show up, to return to the throne. One day, Jesus is coming back to this world, not as a lowly, suffering servant, but as a commanding I tell you what, he's going to be better than King Arthur. Better than David ever was, and you better believe it, it's going to be amazing. So have you accepted again today this Messiah into your life? Have you accepted again, afresh in your own experience, the Savior, who came 2,000 years ago and is coming again. Why not, as we pray, just whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, renew in your heart your gratitude and your acceptance of Jesus, the ideal David living in your heart and life. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we can't wait for you to come back. 
Jesus, we talk about you, we sing about you, we think about you, we talk to you. We don't know what you look like, but we're looking forward to seeing you when you return. Thank you again for what you did for us some 2,000 years ago. Thank you for what you're currently doing for us on our behalf, and thank you in advance for what you will do when you come back and make all things new. Lord, as our shepherd, we want to be your sheep. We want you in our life. We're thankful for your blood that covers us and cleanses us again today, and we look forward to you leading us into your glorious kingdom. May that day come soon. This is our prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Sabbath.